Okay, assalamu alaikum everybody, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to our favorite day of the week. Um, it's another Saturday session, inshallah, where we will be finishing Surah Al-Munafikun. Um, I just wanted to start with a couple of things um, just to let everyone know that a week from tomorrow we are going to be doing part two of the Dispelling Myth series um, questions and answers on uh, spiritual and sexual abuse. So that will be a week from tomorrow um, at 4 p.m. Eastern time. Um, and of course, you know, we'll be live streaming and we'll be recording. So if you can't make it at that time, um, then, <clears throat> you know, you can definitely watch after the fact. Um, and it's going to be, again, similar to part one in which um, we actually do a bit of a curated Q&A. Um, so we have a lot of really, really great questions, um, you know, uh, up, you know, on, in lineup. And uh, if you have any questions also that you'd like us to consider, if we have extra time, then definitely please email me. Um, and, you know, hopefully we'll try and answer as many questions as we can. Um, secondly, very exciting, I just wanted to show everyone we got a copy of the hardback version of the Prophet's Pulpit, which turned out absolutely beautifully. We actually, at Trivia, we have two versions of the hardback. This is the one that is a hardback with jacket. So if you um, order from Barnes & Noble online, this is the version of the hardback you'll get. Um, if you order from Amazon, it's actually, it doesn't come with the jacket, but it actually is more like just printed on the cover. I'm still waiting to receive that one, so um, inshallah that will be beautiful too. But this is absolutely gorgeous, and so if you prefer hardback, definitely order it. Um, and paperback is also brilliant. So, um, and then I think the ebook should be up like literally, like momentarily within the next day or two. So, people who have been waiting for the ebook e version, that will be available really, really soon. So, alhamdulillah for that. Inshallah, inshallah. Um, and oh, and a bel belated Eid Mubarak, because um, we met last time uh, before the Eid. So, I hope everyone had an incredible Eid. Um, I just uh, wanted to um, start by sharing, you know, um, again, Sheikh had an incredible khutbah yesterday um, where he talked about, again, the notion of izza and dignity, but from the perspective of as a group and, you know, when we come together, what we talk about. And, of course, we've been talking a lot about Al-Aqsa Mosque and what's been happening there. So I also wanted to call attention. There's a, a really important video that came out um, that by C.J. Worleman. Um, again, if you know, I, I really encourage every Muslim um, especially to follow C.J. Worleman. He is a uh, not a Muslim, but he is a journalist that is focused on the atrocities committed against Muslims. And so we, I don't know of many Muslim organizations or people that do that, but he himself has taken it upon um, himself to cover a lot of issues. Um, for example, what's been happening in India, pre, you know, like with um, all of the attacks against Muslims. But he also had this article that just came out called, Why Do American Christian Zionists Want Al-Aqsa Mosque? Um, it's a really important, you know, short video where he talks about the history of um, you know Christian Zionism and why they've had so much power especially with like Trump being in office um, it's a really important background to know but the most chilling thing about it is that their power base is increasing and that this is um, you know part of the right-wing movement their belief that you know part of the second coming of Jesus is um, connected to the destruction of Al-Aqsa Mosque and the sooner that that happens and that another temple in the Jewish temple can be built over it then they come closer to what they want. Um, and so the thing that is really important to understand about that is it's so directly tied to the right wing um, movement here in the U.S. and, um, you know, which has basically taken over the Republican Party. Um, and so this is where we as American Muslims um, can have an impact if we get involved in politics. Um, and I just wanted to share a few other headlines because, you know, it's like really uh, painful when you go through 
headlines and see what's happening in the news. And so much of it really does tie to what's going on in, in our political climate. But before I move that, I just I found this other article that came across my desk um, as I was looking for this. It, the title says, After Court OKs Ethnic Cleansing in the West Bank, Israel advances 4,000 settler homes. So apparently, um, it's less than two days after the Israel, Israel's highest court upheld orders for what anti-apartheid campaigners called the ethnic cleansing of eight Palestinian hamlets in the West Bank. Israeli authorities on Friday, yesterday, announced the advancement of nearly 4,000 new Jewish-only settlement homes in the illegally occupied territory. So as someone says here, it's an indicator that Israel is violating international law with impunity and without accountability, and it shows that the international community is using double standards. So um, that was really disturbing. Let me just share, like, um, you know, like, here's a, an example of um, one difference that we can make, right? Right now, we know that the Democratic Party controls theoretically controls the government. Um, they, they have, you know, majority in, in the House and the Senate. But the problem is when you have one or two people like um, Man Joe Manchin um, and uh, Kelly, I forget her, the other person's name, they're like two Democratic holdouts that literally block everything that the Democrats are trying to do. And so here's one headline. Manchin and Kelly joined the GOP in passing the motion to bar Biden from declaring a climate emergency. So, you know, as one climate uh, justice advocate said, our political leadership is out to kill most of us. You know, and then another, you know, Bernie Sanders, who I love because of his, you know, his, the, the very brave stance he takes, he says he blasts the Senate's strange priorities as it advances corporate welfare. And here's a classic Bernie um, quote. We can't extend the child tax credit to combat child poverty, said the Vermont senator, but somehow we can provide a massive amount of corporate welfare to a handful of corporations. So these are things that, you know, we can definitely take um, an, an active, um, you know, participation in. Um, you know, I hope that people will start to... Um, you know, get more involved in, in even their local politics and, and more. Um, you know, here's uh, one impact of, of Biden being blocked from declaring a climate emergency. Here's another headline. The, a UK survey finds a terrifying 60% plunge in the flying insect population. Um, and there's declines are happening at an alarming rate, and without concerted action to address them, we face a stark future. I and mean, we know that the you know insect, and even bee population is dropping dramatically. You know, and these things, you know, if bees are gone, we're dead. So um, th these are you know real impacts that are are confronting us now. Um, so you know the the point of all this is um, you know as Muslims, it's um, you know we talk so much here about you know taking action that we represent God. Um, that this is not you know being Muslim is not just about a label, not just about ritual and prayer. You know, we obviously are talking about this in Surah Manafikun, um, but just, you know, to emphasize, like, you know, there are real threats that are taking place that we, we can have a direct impact on. And I thought I would just end with this really, really nice message that I received um, recently um, where he feels that the work that we've been doing has actually encouraged him, um, you know, to get involved in his local politics. So this was really beautiful. Um, so... Uh, Okay. Alhamdulillah, Rabbul Alameen. Um, I have, uh, he just, it's you at the Asuli Institute who are truly worthy of praise and appreciation for putting forth so much time, effort, and dedication to preserve the Book of Allah. May Allah reward you all immensely and elevate your status in his Jannah. Amin. Um, I uh, was introduced to Dr. Abul Fadl through our Masjid's Halakha group. 
um, someone who shared uh, the, the chutbah titled Speaking the Unspoken Truth About Israel and Palestine. Ever since listening to that chutbah, I have been hooked. As an American-born Muslim, it was the first time that a chutbah had resonated with me so much. Finally, someone with the courage to call it like it is. Also, my entire life, I had heard my late mother speak critically of Wahhabi Islam, but um, was finally, I was able to understand why she was so right. Finding Dr. Abu Fadl's work has been such a blessing for me. Alhamdulillah, it is my sincerest du'a that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserve Dr. Abu Fadl and bless us with his scholarship for many years to come. Um, honestly, I never used to listen to scholars, in quotes, on YouTube because they never really moved my heart. I always just focused on listening to the Quran and reading the Sunnah, which I felt was more than enough for me. However, listening to Dr. Abu Fadl's khutbahs has been such an enlightening experience for me. I used to look at the atrocities taking place against Muslims around the world and wonder why isn't anyone doing anything or saying anything. Upon hearing the news of dozens of innocent Muslims losing their lives in drone attacks, I would often wonder, how can we just hear about such an attack so nonchalantly? It was almost to say as if the Muslim lives that were lost were not worth anything. I always wondered why European societies were racing towards the future while Muslim countries are lagging so far behind. Listening to Dr. Abul Fadl's khutbahs has provided the sad explanation behind all of these inquiries I once had. Um, I agree, indeed, these are dark, time, dark days for Muslims. Like Dr. Abul Fadl says, it is the greatest tragedy of our time that non-Muslims are willing to sacrifice their time, their money, their careers, basically everything for their causes while Muslims are not willing to do anything for the sake of Islam. I just wanted to let Dr. Abul Fadl, you and everyone at Asuli know that your voices are being heard and your speech is not falling on deaf ears or should I say hearts. I am not going to claim even for a second that I'm doing justice to Dr. Abul Fadl's call for a counter jihad, but I promise that I will try to do everything in my power to fight for Islam and Muslims. Since listening to Dr. Abul Fadl's, Abul Fadl's khutbahs, I have already become more engaged in the politics of my local community and plan to devote even more time going forward, making sure Muslims in our community have heard their have their voices heard and their issues resolved, inshallah. There's a lot of work to do, but I am hopeful that through all of our collective efforts, we may be able to revive the Islam that is truly aligned with the Book of Allah and the teachings of our beloved Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him. I mean it, inshallah. So, alhamdulillah, I mean, I just wanted to share that because when I receive messages like that, they're so heartwarming and they're important for, for people to hear and people to know, especially who follow our work, you know, and people who like maybe see that, you know, we don't have, you know, the millions of followers that others have, but clearly people are hearing this message. It is resonating with them. And I really hope that, you know, we will continue to grow as a community and, you know, as a, um, you know, collective effort reach a critical mass where we can actually make a difference. And so, alhamdulillah, when, when we receive a message, when I receive a message like that, it's a message that I want to share with all of us here, because it's, it's for all of us. So um, anyway, thank you so much for being with us. I'm so excited to finish Surah Al-Manafikun, and I'm looking forward to another amazing session. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Subhanallah al-Ali al-Azim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala Muhammad wa ala alihi. وأصحابه وعلى من اتبعه بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين okay, so what, what, uh, Yeah. Okay. 
um, for the sake of coherence, we'll, we'll, we'll summarize a little bit. But um, so we we know that the theme of nifaq is addressed in the Medinian Quran, in particularly uh, the Quran of Medina, um, repeatedly. It's a, it's a consistent issue revisited by the Quran time and again. And Surah Al-Munafiqun, in many ways, it is a summation of what the Quran has to say about the, the problem of nifaq. Inconsistency is a part of the human psyche. Um, none of us, and it is, it is beyond human nature, I think, to be always consistent. Inconsistency is to be expected. However, if you notice in Surah Al-Munafiqun, it is not simply the fact that a person is inconsistent, but there are, if you will, a, a certain symptoms that shine a light on the type of inconsistency that rises to the level of nifaq, of hypocrisy. For one to either tell others and even perhaps swear and, and affirm and insist that one believes and in the same way that you can tell others and you can affirm and insist that you believe when, when dealing with others, you can even do it when dealing with yourself. You can insist, affirm, and swear um, to yourself that you believe. The proof, though, is in the types of symptoms, symptomologies, that the Surah Al-Munafiqun focuses on. And so if... So it, going back to some of the material we've covered last time, we, you remember that we've talked about the various narratives the, that are the background of Surah Al-Munafiqun. We, we've talked about um, a, a narrative that during the um, battle of Banu Mustalik, uh, that there is a dispute over a water hole and that it 
descend deteriorates or the the uh, uh, into some form of uh, tribalism where the person from the uh, from Mecca calls upon the muhajirun and the person from the ansar calls upon the ansar and that there is ultimately a skirmish where the prophet intervenes labeling it a return to Jahiliya and prevents the parties from coming to blows um, over a dispute or I mean and and water here I think is is rather on the one hand it's essential to existence water is as essential as you get but on the other hand even when it comes to basic essentials like that, a human being's convictions must be translated in principled action. So we also have in the background of these narratives, Abdullah ibn Salul, um, Regardless of what precisely uh, caused him to 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 say this, but it, all the narratives sort of have a, a, a coalesce over certain points, and the points upon which they coalesce is that he makes a statement that exudes with arrogance and pettiness. Um, we've helped these people until they've look, look at how they uh, return our favor. Uh, in the sense that these people are ungrateful. We, we've helped them and in the context of commenting upon a dispute between the migrants and the Ansar, the natives, he says, you know, we, we've sacrificed so much for them. And look, you know, they dare fight us. Um, they dare, dare defy us. They dare push back against us, if you will. And, he's, and then this statement that we've talked about, this is like we've, you know, we've fattened our dog until our dog ate us. And... Again, another point of coalition, of coalescence is where um, there is some form of advocacy. The narratives don't always tell us precisely or, or don't always agree about the extent of this advocacy. But the attitude that, well, if they're not going to be properly grateful, then we should just stop helping them we should stop aiding them. And if we do, if, you know, it's like saying it's our fault because we have been so kind to them. And if we just stop being kind to them, um, then they will go away or our pride will be restored, our honor will be restored, or the balance of things, uh, the way he sees that balance will be restored Further elements is that 
that, and again, to, to what extent and all the details, there's a considerable amount of disagreement, but point of coalescence is that um, if we change our attitude towards these people, if we stop helping them, if we stop being so kind to them, if we stop being so giving to them, what will happen is those who should be grateful, those who should be grateful, i.e. the migrants, they will eventually, and as will the, 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 the truly honorable, by this of course is meant the natives, the Ansar, will expel the um, will expel the 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 um, um, the riffraff from Medina. So this is another point of coalescence: is the statement that if we eventually it will be the case that and as yukhrijna minha al-azal that. Uh, the the uh, those who uh, the riffraff will be expelled from our midst if we just sum the the essence of this narrative. Okay, now further that basic elements of the story is once confronted with the allegations of having said these things is a very firm denial. And saying that, you know, as, as I talked about last halakha, that we have narratives that either Zayd ibn al-Arqam heard Abdullah uh, say this or that uh, heard it himself or someone else heard it that Zayd ibn al-Arqam went to the Prophet himself and told the Prophet والسلام, or that Zayd ibn al-Arqam told his uncle and then his uncle went to the Prophet and and and, and told the, the Prophet والسلام, regardless of the details is that when confronted there is a firm insistence that no I didn't say any of this and an insistence that I am a good Muslim a sound Muslim and so on and as we talked about again last halakha other elements of the story is the one where we um, uh, Abdullah ibn Ubay sort of gives himself a symbolic role at Jum'ah, which I've described last halaqa, where he stands and sort of points to the prophet, says, here I introduce to you your prophet. Um, and that after doing what he did in the Battle of Uhud, withdrawing with one-third of the army, then people start saying, you know, just keep quiet and sit down. You, you've You've lost the role to uh, 
assigned yourself an honored position and that he becomes very bitter about this. Um, and again, we have the, the point of coalescence for this narrative that he either says, you know, the, the, the riffraff will be expelled from our midst or we should stop helping them or, you know, they're like a dog we fattened who's now dares um, uh, uh, bark back at us, um, uh, so on. And then again, that element that when he's confronted, him and his supporters sincerely or, or in, uh, persistently deny that, in fact, they did what they're accused of doing until then the narratives, again, disagree as to whether the prophet then tells Zayd ibn al-Arqam, you know, I believe Abdullah ibn Ubay, which I very doubt, very much doubt these narratives where the, the, the prophet disbelieved Zayd ibn al-Arqam and believed Abdullah ibn Ubay. It doesn't make any sense. If you know who Zayd ibn al-Arqam or who his uncle was, uh, it's very unlikely, and especially that Abdullah ibn Ubay, you know, has already, I mean, the Battle of Uhud was drawing with one third of the army, and these these narratives tell us that the Prophet supposedly tells Abdullah ibn Ubay, "Oh, I believe you, and I don't believe Zaid ibn al-Arqam until the Quranic revelation comes and vindicates Zaid." Uh, um, that, that's very doubtful. This doesn't make any historical sense. But what the common elements again is that there is a denial. And faced with a denial, this person's Islam has to be taken at face value. But yet, the Quran comes and warns the Prophet saying, these are the enemy, so fahzarhum, be very careful. Uh, because they are a danger. So we've talked about most of the, this, and when you find there are so many historical narratives that disagree over the details, but coalesce over some basic fundamental essentials, Sometimes in the medieval memory or the medieval way of narrating things, a complex historical reality would be reduced to a symbolic theatrical performance. So you could have many moving parts with many actors playing a role that we would collectively call the role of hypocrisy. But in the medieval narrative, the way that story would be told would be summed up in the person of Abdullah ibn Ubay. So when you dig deeper, you find that, in fact, it's not just Abdullah ibn Ubay 
but that there are a number of actors that behave in a way that overlaps with what we are told about Abdullah ibn Ubay. Um, people like Wajd ibn Qais and so on. And that one, and to me, I mean, I didn't go into, into the details of this last halaqa, but um, look, examine the dispute that reportedly takes place in Ghazwat ibn al-Mustalak, right? It's, on the one hand, it's a petty dispute, but not really. It's a type of dispute that can easily occur at any time and in our modern age, but instead of water, you can replace any other material object, right? So, uh, what was his name? I'm blanking out. Um, Jahjah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jahjah bin Sa'id al Ghafari. So, Jahjah bin Sa'id al Ghafari reaches. A water source and reaches this first and water wells in Arabia are not like water wells um, uh, that you would find in Europe or you find in the United States. In the desert, in order to access water, in, in an oasis, you often have to have to engage in 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 a bit of architectural work where you trap the water so that you can utilize it. The water quickly flows and is quickly absorbed by the ground. So it, it's not a matter of just you know taking a bucket and lowering the bucket in a pool of water, but you actually build something so that you can trap the water and have enough of a water flow so you can use it for yourself and for your cattle. And Jahjah reportedly, upon reaching this water, he builds, puts, you know, precisely how it's done, I'm not sure, but stone and clay and so on engages, invests the type of work to trap the water, and it's not about Jahjah himself using the water, but Jahjah wants to prevent anyone from using the water until his friends and their cattle, meaning people from his clan, people from the, uh, and, and generally the Ansar, but more, specifically from the clan of Canaan, because he was a Canaani, um, to come and, so it, effectively he's, he's telling everyone else, particularly what Jahjah sees as 
the people least familiar to him, the, the, the muhajirun, the migrants, the foreigners, if you will. Um, so, No, I'm, I'm actually, I'm sorry. It's Sanan who, who um, does that. It's not Jahjah. Jahjah is the Qurayshi. That's why I'm, I was pausing, because I was trying to, to get it straight in my mind. Sanan is the Ansari, and Jahjah is the Qurayshi. So it's Sanan who builds the, the, who traps the water, and when Jahjah, the Qurayshi, from among the Muhajirun, comes, and he, Sanan tells him, no, you, you can't get have your cattle drink. No one can use this water until my people, my friends, use the water first. In response to Sanan, Jahjah insists that we are all one. There is no your people and my people and this is, was the attitude of the, the Muhajirun generally. This was the attitude of the migrants. And we are all in battle, preparing for battle, because this supposedly takes place before the, the actual battle, um, um, right before the actual battle. And my camel and the camel of other migrants need the water in our collective enterprise, right? This is what Jahjah is saying. Sanan is saying, I got here first. I invested the labor. I invested the material in trapping this water. And, be and such, and because of this, I made it a point to come here first and to put in all of this to give priority to my people. And this is the this is the real context upon which it was Jahjah, the Quraishi, the migrant, struck Sanan, struck and injured him. Because Jahjah insisted on watering his animals and what from Jahjah's perspective, Sanan was acting very selfishly. And after Jahjah strikes Sanan, Sanan then calls upon the Ansar, and Jahjah calls upon the Qurayshis, who are migrants, and they are about to go to blows when someone rushes to the Prophet ﷺ to come and intervene. If you look at this event, and regardless of whatever exaggerations might have gone into it, but the basic event, it, if you do not have a clear moral, ethical, principled stand about what you are engaged in, if, if you are not fully committed to the cause, 
from the perspectives of the natives, i.e. from the perspectives of those that we now commonly refer to as hypocrites, but who at the time were just fellow Muslims. They didn't wear a sign saying hypocrite. And it is only after the fact that history labels them hypocrites. At the time, they were just known as fellow Muslims. From the perspectives of the natives that we now label hypocrites, they looked at this dispute and they basically said, from their perspective, here we go again. The Qurayshis, the migrant Qurayshis, are taking, taking advantage of us. In the same way that they came to our town and shared our resources, and whatever we had, we were forced to share with them, here we go again, an Ansari, a native Medinian, puts in the effort, puts in the work, and then a Muhajir, a Qureshi, comes after the fact and says, we share. This is why it became a fitna, not because it was crazy and irrational, but because there was illogic to it. Right? Now, why is this significant? Well, think about it. If you are really honest with yourself, if you were a native, if you were, in fact, Sanan, you got there first, you put in the expense and the effort at trapping the water, and your friends told you, oh, well, okay, you know, make sure you reserve me a turn. Make sure that I get priority when I get there. Would you have, in fact, had the moral and ethical clarity to say, my sacrifice is just part of the collective jihad. It doesn't entitle me to any priority. You see, I submit to you that the sad reality is the majority of us would have been a part of this fitna, would have easily fallen to this fitna. You require an ethical and moral clarity to say a cause takes priority and the cause takes such priority that I must be selfless. That, it's that, that word, selfless. I mean, think of how much of a challenge this is to actually be selfless, not to think of the self and what the self is entitled to because our psychological outlook is always it starts 
from the self and emanates from the self, and not to become resentful and resentful and spiteful about the sacrifices. After all, the very battle is a sacrifice. I mean, the, the, the Medinians didn't have to get involved in Badr when they did. The, this was right after, the, the, shortly after the defeat in Uhud, and which caused a lot of ter- turmoil and a lot of hardship, and we've talked about the Quran in the aftermath of Uhud. And here, right before Banu al-Mustalaq, you know, nerves are, people are tense, there's a lot of anxiety, things are heightened, you don't know how things are going to unfold in battle, and it is under moments or under times of extreme anxiety and stress where ethics and morality matter the most. It is not when things are going your way and you are feeling generous and happy. The test of morality is that it it stands, it holds firm at the time it is actually disadvantageous to be moral, to be ethical. Being ethical when it there is a windfall for the self to be ethical raises a very serious philosophical question as to whether in fact you are being ethical. When being ethical actually promotes you, benefits you, is it a contradiction in terms to say that one is being ethical where in fact what we identify as being ethical is actually something that helps you. That's a philosophical question, but at least what we all can agree on, that the true test of ethics is when it is selfless, when it involves not a service to the self, but in fact denying the self. So, let's go then go back to this element of hypocrisy. In Surah Al-Munafiqun. So, first is this fitna. But then, it's this very difficult and rare quality of even if you weakened when confronted, when tested, even if you fell apart when tested, because if the narratives are true, this is not just two people fighting. This is a whole bunch of people and a whole bunch of people. So to simply think it's just Abdullah ibn Ubay, if you don't if you're, if you're not anchored in the, the nature of medieval narratives, 
you 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 lose the point because then you think oh well it's just one person and look you know i'm not like abdullah Obey. i'm not abdullah Obey. i'm fine if the issue was abdullah ibn Obey, surah al-munafiqun would have been surah like surah you know so on it would have talked about the person, but it's not Abdullah ibn Ubay. It's not about Abdullah Ubay. And that's why Surah Al-Munafqun is narrated the way it, it, it is narrated. It talks about a, a problem itself, the problem of Nifaq. Okay, so a real test and alhamdulillah the, the, the prophet intervenes and prevents it from deteriorating but as you expect in human interactions just because the prophet i mean we we have this unrealistic way when we talk about the seerah we imagine that the prophet came in and said what is this this is jahiliyyah and then people just you know the music starts playing the sun shines and you know they get a sparkle in their eyes and then they start hugging and kissing right well it's not the way that's not reality it's not even history just because the prophet prevented things from deteriorating some people came to their senses right away but think of the nature of human, the nature of human psychology. Yes, some people, and I would suspect many people, they were convinced not to go to blows. But did their, did their, what is in their heart, did it clear right away? I doubt. There remains the whatever views they've held about the merits of the of the dispute there remains the um the vehemence the the anger the the spite symbolized in the person of abdullah ibn Ubay. and when i say what remains means that various people are then going around saying what is put in the mouth of Abdullah Obey. I mean, he probably said it, but the point is, he wasn't the only one, that there were a lot of people saying the same things. Oh, you know, look, we've helped these people so much after we've sacrificed so much for them, they won't even give us priority when it comes to water. You know, if they truly were grateful, they would just wait, you know, we came first, so they would... Can you imagine if, in, in the, if this took place in our day? We would say, "Oh, after everything we've done for them, and, and, and they, can, they, they, they won't even respect the fact that we have priority because we came first and we put." So you, you had a lot of this talk, and I'm sure a lot of people went further, saying, "Oh, this is this is this is too much. This is getting ridiculous." And because this talk is going 
before the battle, before the battle, because this is an important point, some might have even started saying, oh my God, you know, we, this is it. When we get back to Medina, we, it's going to be a different matter. We're going to take a stand, and we are no longer going to be helpful. Why does it matter that this took, this took place before battle? Because the battle was a wild success. And because the battle was a wild success, a lot of the people that said things they shouldn't have said and had attitudes they shouldn't have had, it's like, you know, you're, if you have, if you're fighting with your husband or you're fighting with your wife, right? And you're arguing and you have a lot, you're full of anger and then something happy, happy happens. You get a phone call, tells you some good news. Suddenly you forgot the fight and you pretend like, because now you, 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 you're happy. So you, you go back being lovey-dovey and forget the argument. Because the battle went well, a lot of the individuals who now are happy because they, they, there were spoils of war, they even got, and we'll talk about this in a second, they got a, a handsome share of spoils of war. It you know, all their fears and anxieties and so on, when, when they were in a, in a, in a uh, grumpy mood because they're anxious about the battle that's going to unfold, now they're, they're, they're jovial, they're happy, right? Now, what happens when you're happy? You want to pretend that the ugliness that took place didn't take place. And Allah comes and says no. Allah comes and says, no, it's not that easy. I'm not going to let you off the hook. Those who have nifaq in their heart, the, the ones who were grumpy or vindictive or spiteful or, or whatever, can't now pretend that they didn't they weren't going around saying what they were saying. And that, in fact, now that they go around acting like it was nothing, they are taking Islam and making it a cover. As we said, Ijunna. This historical point is very critical because you don't find it in any of the traditional tafsir. But it is critical to understanding the dynamics. It's not just Abdullah ibn Ubay. There is a very real human issue and a very real confrontation and a very real call to conscience. Okay. Why? Because look, when you get to you get to five, right? Wa Taalu Yastaghfir Lakum Rasulullah 
لو رؤوسهم ورأيتهم يصدون وهم مستكبرون سواء عليهم استغفرت لهم أم لم تستغفر لهم لن يغفر الله لهم إن الله لا يهدي قوم الفاسقين Five and six where it tells you that when they are told Come, so the Prophet ﷺ will ask Allah to forgive you. What does that mean? Again, you look at the, 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 uh, like Ibn Kathir or, or uh, the tafsir literature generally. They'll tell you that when Abdullah ibn Ubay, and again, he's the, always a symbolic, he performs that symbolic role because he, 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 was a, he played a prominent role, but it was not, you know, anyway, what, what I said before, it was not just him. So they tell you that when Surat al-Munafiqun is revealed and Allah says that Zayd ibn al-Arqam was in fact truthful and that Abdullah ibn Ubay was lying. The narratives even go and tell you that Zayd ibn al-Arqam was so happy that because he was very depressed when the Prophet believed Abdullah ibn Ubay and didn't believe him, that he was very, very sad. And then Allah reveals Surah Al-Munafiqun and then Zayd ibn al-Arqam is vindicated and so Zayd ibn al-Arqam is very happy. And then people go tell Abdullah ibn Ubay, listen, you know, Allah now has revealed the truth. Zayd ibn al-Arqam was saying the truth. You were lying. Go ask the Prophet's forgiveness. And he says, no, I won't. But if you doubt the authenticity that the Prophet ﷺ would have done the highly irrational act of believing Abdullah ibn Ubay and not believing Zayd ibn al-Arqam, this entire narrative is medieval theater. This entire narrative is medieval theater. So you dig deeper. So you research you go out of the tafsir literature and you look into the riwayat and the musannafat especially like Abdul Razak ibn, ibn, ibn Abi Shayban, Kitab al-Asl and so on. And what emerges is what I think is actually a, 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 a more believable and truer narrative that after the Ghazwa, and I doubt it, and I think it was before the revelation of Surat al-Munafiqun, it was not after the revelation, but after the Ghazwa, before the revelation of Surat al-Munafiqun, that some of the people who now were pretending to have not said what they've said, to have not engaged in the type of the type of what what do you describe it? Unbecoming talk that they engaged in. 
the ones who are now trying to pretend like they, they, you know, they were always, like there was no problem. Like Mu'atab ibn Khushair and so on. Or, or Dakhsham, Malik ibn Dakhsham, and people like that. Their attitude of, well, first, the, the part that we, we talked about, that their, their attitude of, of, of saying, you know, uh, oh, well, uh, the, their attitude of trying to distance themselves from the role they played the, in, in failing the ethics, failing the principle, when they were confronted by those who whose conscience bothered them. And they were told, you know, we can't just pretend like we didn't play, we, we, didn't, we didn't fail morally. It is, we did fail. We did say things that were not appropriate. We did act in a way that was unbecoming. It is time for us to repent. Their attitude was like the attitude that I would submit to you would be 99% of Muslims today, argumentative. And, well, there's nothing for us to apologize for. Oh, what? We won the battle. No civil, there was, there was no, we didn't get into a civil war. The battle went marvelously well. There's nothing for us to apologize for. That type of arrogance and 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 stubbornness and um, lack of moral introspection that is very common to human beings. It, 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 we feel the Quranic text when we think that when Allah says they are told, come to the Prophet to, to, to ask Allah to, for, to forgive you. The dynamics is, I, because we do have reports that some of them are told, go apologize to the Prophet. And they say, no, we won't. The battle went well. There's nothing for us to apologize about. But I think here, it's even broader that you have something to repent for, and the argument that, you know, the argument that what, what ends well, you know, all is well if it ends well, well, that's a highly immoral perspective. No, just because it ends well doesn't mean it's well. What were your responsibility for your own moral actions? And and in fact, I mean, subhanAllah, the, the, when the Quran tells us that, that their moral failure is so great that Allah is not to, going to forgive them. In, indeed, these same people, when we get to Ghazwa Tabuk, for instance, they go back to the same pattern of behavior that they're accustomed to. Once things get stressful, once there's high anxiety, once there's a real test, 
they go back to their pettiness. And they go back to their lack of selflessness. They go back to whining and complaining and being bitter and being spiteful. And what is this? There's too, this is too much. And here is the, the we touched upon this last halakha, but now I'm tying it to the historical reality of Surah Al-Munafiqun is that these same people, well, Allah is telling us, you want to understand the psychology of the people that could very well be you, could very well be you, is that they are like, when it says khushbun musanna, like, like these, these, what I talked about, these pieces of wood that are not malleable and, 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 and are um, not at all flexible. That because they revolve around the Mecca of their ego, their true Kaaba is their own ego. And when you are constantly in a state of umbrance, protecting your egotistical self. What state are you in? You are always standing like a, you know, like stiff and always protesting the way that you're offended, the way that you're, the way that you are uh, mistreated, the way that people are not fair to you, the people, the, the way that things are unjust, the way, you are in a constant state of, sub, of, of worshiping the self. Where is myself and how is myself offended? How is myself not served? How are myself not worshiped? How is myself not, uh, you know, elevated by everyone around me? And if I don't feel any time, regardless of the situation, especially in, in times of crisis, I don't feel my aggrandized self, I object and I protest. Try to picture that, and it is exactly like the Quran tells you, like like these you know, stiff pieces of wood. Now, the other part, which is beautifully, in, in, in the language of the Quran, is just so perfect. When you are like that, when the Quran tells you they think everything is, every cry is against them. What that means idiomatically is that you see the world from your own egotistical perspective so that you think everything is about you. You think Everything is about you. It is not about the cause. It is not about the Prophet. It is not about Allah. It is not about Islam. It is not about... Yes, yes, you swear. Remember, they swear up and down that no, they are believers. They are in fact committed to the cause. But in reality... They see the entire world from the perspective of their ego and how their ego is being served.
am I being elevated or am I being ignored? I am, am I center place or am I marginalized? And because of that, they're prone to imagining conspiracies. They're prone to imagining, oh, this is all about ignoring me. This is all about hurting me. This is all about offending me. In one of the khutbahs I gave, I remember I said, and I don't remember which khutbah, but I said something like, get over yourself. And what I, what I, I was inspired is by, in this by Surah Al-Munafiqun, because it, in a nutshell, what the, what, if you cannot get over yourself, then the sad reality is you have a high dosage of nifaq. If you cannot get over yourself, if you main, remain trapped in your feelings of your feelings of how the self has been injured, or how the self has not been served, or how the self is offended, or you know, all the, the rather than a cause, rather than a cause then the dosage of nifaq is probably high. And that's the really scary thing about Surah Al-Munafiqun, is that it strips us naked before our own eyes, because all of us have nifaq. That description of khushub musannada, and especially in the modernized psyche, in the modern psyche, where we are raised often not thinking of causes, not thinking of principles, not thinking of ethics, but we are actually taught that the ethical principle is the ego. Take care of number one. I mean, it's sad because in many ways we are victims, but in many ways we are not victims because modernity because it serves a capitalist system really well. Modernity manufactures munafiqun in mass, you know, like a mass assembly. And these are the types of people that serve us because these are the types of people that will buy products. If you can ignore the world, ignore the suffering of everyone in the world, and worry about, number one, your own egotistical self, what are you going to do? You're going to spend money. If you are going to worry about the world, you're not going to spend money. You're not going to care about, uh, you know, Versace and uh, I don't know, whatever else brands there are, you, because you are concerned about a cause. That Surah Al-Munafiqun, when it comes and says, and this is the part that I have always, to me, Surah Al-Munafiqun has always been one of the scariest surah in the Quran. I mean, although it doesn't talk about, you know, descriptions of hell or anything, but it, it's, it, the way that it confronts you, makes you stand in a mirror, is that when it says, Allah will not forgive them. 
unless you confront your sin, confess your sin before your God, I mean, we don't, the, the Prophet is, is, is not with us, and so going to the Prophet and confessing your sin is not an option, right? So unless you confess your sin and come to terms with the way that your own nifaq, that, it's, that nifaq is not going to be forgiven. So much of the Quran, I mean, I was talking to Shayan yesterday, and he was saying that the tafsir is the answer to everything. And I completely, so so much, I so completely agree with him. So much of what we've learned about the Quran, every ayah can have a truly transformative impact on your life and your existence. Every single surah we've talked about. But here again is an example of a thoroughly revolutionary surah, if we properly understand it. Because it is, it is, puts the full responsibility upon you to get over yourself, to go beyond the self. And although Allah knows we are incapable of complete consistency, and, and maybe it's not even sometimes complete inconsistent, complete consistency is ugly. Uh, I don't I forgot the philosopher who said, you know, those who are completely consistent are insane. But it, at what point the inconsistency becomes hypocrisy? Well, especially when it is focused around serving that self. And that self becomes the center of the existence of the person. Not a cause, not a principle, not a ethic, not a morality, not Islam, not Allah, but the self. Okay, now, So we already, we already saw what what seven is talking about. الَّذِينَ يَقُولُونَ لَا تُنْفِقُوا عَلَى مَنْ عِنْدِ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ حَتَّى يَنْفَضُوا وَلِلَّهِ خَزَائِنَ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَلَكِنْ مُنَافِقِينَ لَا يَفْقَهُونَ And eight, يَقُولُونَ لَإِنْ رَجَعْنَا إِلَى الْمَدِينَةِ لِيُخْرِجُنَا الْعَزُّ مِنْهَا الْأَزَلِ وَلِلَّهِ الْعِزَّةُ وَلِلرَّسُولِ وَلِلْمُؤْمِنِينَ Allah exposes the, the inappropriate talk that was going on upon the unfolding of this dispute and pre-battle. That, you know, when people were going around and saying, oh, stop helping them, you know, we've had enough, or that, you know, it's time that we get rid of the riffraff. And, and this, for, you know, it's, you know, when they say hindsight is 100, is, is 2020, right? 
it's easy for us to read this history and say, oh, how awful, how could they say something like that? But be honest with yourself and put yourself in the historical circumstance and truly confront what you think your position would have been. Would you have been among those who said, oh, we've shared enough, I've given enough. Uh, you know, it's time that they go away. What is this? You know, battle after battle, we've we shared everything, we shared our homes, we shared this, we, now they're even sharing. And, uh, would you have been a, one of those people? Or would you have been one of the, the people say, we have a cause, we have a a principle, we have a God, It's it, it all belongs to God, we all sacrifice for God, and it doesn't matter who gave what. Because that's a really tough question. It's easy to think of yourself, you know, when we are told, we are told narrative stories of history since childhood, of the hero. And the child always, or most children, imagine themselves naturally as similar to or identical to the heroic figure. The heroic figure that does, you know, all the things that are right. If life was only so simple, the truth of the matter is the vast majority of us would not be the heroic figure. The vast majority of us, the vast majority, would fall far short of the heroic figure. Same thing when we read the seerah. Because the thing that always bothers me, because, and this is because people who tell the Sirar often have no historical training and have, have not read comparative history and have not read the, how history was told at the time that Islam, the texts of Islam was being documented and have not read pre-Islamic history and have not read his, the, the historical annals of history from pre-Islamic to, and you see in the way that the human mind developed, in the way that the human beings tell history. And as a result, when we tell the history, we always tell it in a, very, in a highly suggestive fashion that as if to clearly assert the foregone conclusion that you, the listener, will obviously would have been among the right side, the side that is with the Prophet, with the companions, with Alil Bayt, you know, the side that are just on, you know, the, the, shine, the light is shining on them and they're the side of truth and beauty and, and so on. While the truth of the matter is, it, the truth of the matter is, in the challenges of history, the sad reality is that most of us would have faltered. Would have tripped over our own clarity of vision and principle and sacrifice. So now, I told you that important part of the story is how the battle goes. And here I want to talk about the example of Juwairiya because of the, the, the things that, you'll see why 
it, it raises a number of things. And I was, you know, debating, should I just leave it to the Sira? But I'll touch upon it enough to, um, in, and it's in the way that it overlaps in understanding the message of Surah Al-Munafqun. So, Ghazwat Ben al-Mustalik goes surprisingly well. Ben al-Mustalik turned out to be, um, for all their tough talk and all the the the, the plans that they, they you know they, they say that they were going to go and invade Medina and so on, when the Muslim army shows up, uh, they they don't resist much. They they fight a bit and then they run. And they abandoned their properties, their 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 their, uh, their homes, they, and they they escaped to the desert. Now, the prisoners from Banu Mustalak, those who are captured, and they are have not converted to Islam. They're not Christian, they're not Jews, they're polytheists, right? And according to the laws of war at the time, it's not, that doesn't surprise me that they are taken captive or they're enslaved. But how do we negotiate history? You have two important clusters of narratives about Ghazwat Banu al-Mustalaq. The first cluster says that Juwairiya, her husband is killed in the battle of Banu al-Mustalaq and she is captured. Let me just check one thing, sorry. Oh no, maybe. Um, yeah. So anyway, that Juwairiya is given to Thabit ibn Qais. And that according to the law of the time, she enters into Mukataba. Mukataba is a contract by which the slave buys their own freedom through their own labor. And which is again, if 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 you're analyzing the institution of slavery, um, this is a, a critical point because the fact that we are told that Banu al-Mustalaq, those who did not convert to Islam, uh, had a right to engage. Later on in Islamic law, the Muslim jurists, part of the imperial experience, they, they, they try to, some, some Muslim jurists try to take away that as a right. The fact that the slave would have a right to enter a contract with their master to buy their freedom, meaning to pay their master back for whatever, they, uh, whatever price, the market value, because it was determined by market value. Anyway, 
uh, and then become a free person. Later on, in the imperial experience of Islam, some jurists try to take argue that this the mukataba is not a matter of right, but a matter of uh, it's voluntary. It's up to the master to either agree to a mukataba or not. But the historical evidence, clearly, in my view, was that in Medina, it was a matter of right that it was. The master didn't have an option whether to enter into a contract or in Mukataba or not. But among the clusters, this cluster, is that Juwayriya then goes to the Prophet ﷺ and she has heard that people of Banu Qais who are captive go to the Prophet and ask the Prophet to pay their contract off from the money of zakah. So she goes to the Prophet and says, I have a contract of Mukataba to buy my freedom from Thabit ibn Qais. Can you pay can you pay off my contract from the zakah? Why am I mentioning all of this? Because those who have written books about slavery in Islam show an incredible amount of ignorance to the subtleties of the historical dynamics and practice. Because that in itself gives you pause. A contract of Mukataba, and then you go to the representative of the state and the representative of the state pays off your contract and you are a mushrik. Okay, so you f you're freed and you're a mushrik. What becomes of you? You're not a Christian, you're not a Jew. You're a mushrik. You're not a Muslim. If you became a Muslim by the practice of Medina, you wouldn't be a slave. To dumb down these things, to try to say Islam is pro-slavery or Islam is just anti-slavery, without the nuance, it's a, a unbecoming. It's it's simplistic, and anyway, okay. So let's continue on. So now, in the the, the first cluster, this all is part of the first cluster. That a narrative from Aisha is that tells us, as Aisha always tells us about every woman that uh, the Prophet marries, that Juwairiya was very beautiful. I doubt that beauty, I mean, yeah, anyway. And that the, the narrative says, oh, when the minute I saw Juwairiya talk to the Prophet, I worried that he's going to want to marry her. A cluster of narratives that don't portray the Prophet in a flattering light. And the reality of the matter is, and this is in, in the work of uh, Hassan Farhan al-Maliki, uh, this, this is where uh, his contributions are critical, is that the role of the munafiqun in narrating of the, all, a lot of these reports, because Hazal Farhar al-Malaki, and I really believe he's right, that many people who narrated 
these types of hadith were not sincere Muslims. And they narrated them, in fact, to slander the Prophet and that despite the efforts of Bukhari and Muslim and Nisa'i and so on, they were not able to wean out all of these traditions that were injected. Because what type of man, Aisha, according to his narrative, is, oh, the minute I saw her, I knew that he would want to marry her. What, what, what type of image are you giving about your prophet? And according, and Aisha becomes a topoi for beautiful women because Aisha is constantly in that role. Oh, this woman was so beautiful that, and, and so the prophet married her. I doubt that Aisha even said, but, but why is Aisha chosen in that role? Why is Aisha chosen in that symbolic role as the woman who's constantly telling us about the beautiful women that are coming to the Prophet and the Prophet then wants. Although, remember when we've talked about this, that although already the Quran had told the Prophet don't look at what well no let's scratch this because it's not it is not consistent just with the personality and the character of the Prophet that wasn't the type of person he was at all despite these these narratives anyway okay so According to this, this cluster going on, is then the Prophet says, well, instead of paying off your contract of Mukataba, what if I marry you? And, and here it's, well, you're going to marry... And in some of the narratives, it says, what if I pay off your debt and marry you myself? And then Shuhayriya becomes very excited and uh, says yes and converts to Islam. And uh, we know that she actually becomes a very pious Muslim in, in the sense that the, she was known, Shuhayriya was actually famous for her dhikr, that she would spend very long times in in dhikr. Now, however, Juwairiyah was the daughter of Al-Harith Ibn Dhrar, or Ibn Abi Dhrar. And Harith Ibn Abi Dhrar shortly after the battle of Banu al-Mustalaq, converts to Islam and becomes a well-known Sahabi. And we know that the number 
of Sahaba, number of companions who play a very important role in Islamic history. In other words, they convert and they become prominent Muslims from Banu al-Mustalaq is very high. Why is this significant? Because you suspect if it was just a matter of enslavement and buying their freedom, that wouldn't explain the high rate of conversion and the high rate of becoming accomplished individuals in Islamic history. I, in other words, the piety thermometer. What accounts for conversion and piety rather than conversion and nifaq is the fact that there was a substantive experience with Muslims that went beyond war and captivity. War and captivity doesn't result in a high level of conversion and piety. It would result in a high level of conversion and hypocrisy. Once you see a high level of conversion and piety, you know that there is a far more substantive historical process than simply war and captivity. So, if we are told that Al-Haris ibn Abi Dharar converted before Jawairiyah and that in all cases we know that Jawairiyah herself becomes a Abida Zakira, a very pious Muslim, and her father becomes a very pious Muslim. Just one second. Okay, now we get to um, so we get to the second cluster of narratives. The second cluster of narratives tells us that after the battle of Banu al-Mustalaq, the Prophet ﷺ put Juwayriya in the care, in the care, take care, care, in the care take, care take, in the care take of one of the companions. I can't, I don't remember his name, and I didn't put it in my notes. Not as a slave. And in fact, the second clusters of narratives tell us not that Banu al-Mustalaq were enslaved, but they were held as prisoners for fida', for a ransom, which is again consistent with the practice at the time. And that Juwairiya was placed in the caretake of a companion who I can't remember his name, and that her father, Al-Haris, came with her ransom money to buy her freedom. And when he, upon coming to the Prophet والسلام, with the ransom money, the Prophet said, no, we don't want the ransom money. 
here's your daughter, as he did with most of the women, or all of the women, actually, of Banu al-Mustaliq, that he said, here, here she is, she's free to go. We were just holding her until her family showed up. Because of the this gracious treatment, when they saw that Muslims were so gracious that they honored the prisoners, didn't mistreat them, and then forgave the ransom for all the children and women, Juwairiya's father converted to Islam and so did her brothers. And that the Prophet ﷺ married Juwairiya to send a message, not because it has, and in fact, we, we don't know. I mean, there are, apparently there are reports. Uh, the only report we have that said that she's beautiful is Aisha. Everyone else that described Juwairiya said she was just a woman, just like any other woman. I mean, not, nothing. Uh, yeah. But that then the Prophet ﷺ married her to send a message to the people of Banu al-Mustaliq that you are, are you and you and us are the same people. And that that alliance with Banu al-Mustaliq and that marriage in particular, the Prophet ﷺ marrying the son of Harith, proved critical in Banu al-Mustaliq shifting alliance from being pro-Mecca to being pro-Islam. And that after this marriage, it, that's, the, 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 mark, that's the, 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 the point upon which many of the tribe of Banu al-Mustaliq converted to Islam. One other thing I forgot about the first cluster. The first cluster tells us that when the Prophet ﷺ married Juwairiya, that many Muslims thought, well, now the Prophet married a woman from Banu al-Mustaliq, we can't hold the members of Banu al-Mustaliq as slaves. Because how can we hold the relatives of the prophet's wives as slaves so that they freed their captives in mass? Now, between these two clusters, I think when you look at when when you look at the details of the role that Banu al-Mustalaq played in Islamic history, the second cluster seems to me far more convincing than the first cluster. The second cluster where you have, because, and this is a consistent theme, is that the treatment of people was, by Muslims, was so benevolent and that that was the element that attracted so many people to Islam. Now, 
whether I mean, and it's possible that the truth is somewhere between the first cluster and the second cluster, Allahu Alam. The part that I completely reject is this narrative that, oh, she was so beautiful that the minute the Prophet saw her, he's like, oh, I want to marry her. It's just not consistent with the, which of course is a constant theme of all the Islamic, Islamophobic literature. And sadly, it is also something that misogynistic men you know, on the theme of sexual abuse, why do sexual? Why do you think sexual abuse takes place among imams that are supposed to be pious? Because if you are, if you have hypocrisy in your heart, and you fall upon a narrative like this, oh, the prophet saw her and she was so beautiful. The prophet wanted to marry her, and then you think to yourself, well, if this was a prophet, how about me? If I see a woman and I think she's very beautiful and I have feelings for her, well, if the prophet wasn't embarrassed about wanting to marry her, then why should I? And then you start, then these people start telling themselves, oh, you know, the reason I feel this shame or embarrassment is because of the influence of the Western civilization, evil Western civilization. No, in Islam, we don't care about our wives, and we just, if we find an attractive woman, we go for her. That's the Islamic thing. And it's, you've turned the unethical into Islamic. And let's not kid ourselves. That plays a critical role. Why do people who pray and fast and do zikr and like all these people that you know that are biased, and they, you know, you find that they engage in things that are, we say, it's not becoming. It's just not. It's innately, intuitively, you know, someone who is pious, someone who is devout, should not be doing. This is your answer. Because, yeah, they know about the, if they're religiously knowledgeable, they know about the two clusters. But their ego, what calls upon them to believe the first cluster, not the second cluster? Because it's self-serving. That's nifaq. You see how nifaq works? When you look at the tradition and you choose what is self-serving, promotes me, the I, Anna. That's nifaq. Not what promotes the principle, Islam, Allah, the Anna. When the, in, in Arabic, there's a special tadakhum al-Anna. When the Anna, the me, becomes inflated. Piety requires deflating the Anna constant deflation of the me. You have no hope for piety if you can't deflate the Anna. Take it as a rule. Because a lot of people say, you know, how how the path to Allah, the path to Allah, the path to Allah, how I don't feel it, what what do you feel, what, what type of experience? My answer is always... The path to Allah starts and in fact ends, as you will discover, inshallah, with deflating the Anna, a constant deflation of the Anna. 
The more you deflate the ana, the more Allah fills in the space. The bigger your ana, the more there is no space for Allah. There's just no space. It takes over. When Allah says that there can't be more than one God, and that if there was more than one God, as I was talking about on the khutbah yesterday, that it wouldn't work. It just wouldn't work. The same applies with the self. There can't be within the self more than one God. It's either you or God or Allah. The more the self is occupied with you as an ilah al-awhad or ilah al-azam, there's no space for Allah. The more it, the, the you is deflated, the more the true God steps in. All the salah, the sujood, the ruku'ah, the dhikr, the, the psalm, the, all of these are instrumentalities for achieving that. That's it. They're instrumentalities. If you pray the salah, and in the salah you don't feel the ana deflate a little bit, then your salah didn't achieve its purpose. The whole point of the salah, think of the ruku'ah, the sujood, is deflation of the ana. If you pray and your ana is still intact the way it is before and after. Okay, let's take a five-minute break and then. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Okay. So, uh, I, not to belabor the point, but uh, the the language here is, uh, you know, it's reported that that Abdullah ibn Ubay is the one who says it. But again, as where it says, "Allah, لو كففتم عنهم لتحولوا عنكم لتحولوا عنكم من بلادكم إلى غيرها." The expression that if لو كففتم عنهم, if if you just stop helping them, they will go away. Um, how how simple the sentiment, but how base at the same time. And what scares me is that I can imagine people who think of themselves as pious Muslims uh, would have the same attitude. I mean, think of. Think of the modern nation state and think of refugees and think of you, you're, you're a Muslim country and there are refugees coming from wherever and you say, oh, you know, if we just stop being so kind to refugees, they will go away. They'll stop coming to our country. That type of attitude, which is so common and I would bet you there would be tons and tons of Muslims that would say that without a second thought that this is unethical or that this is un-Islamic or that this is hypocrisy. If you just stop being so kind, if you just stop being so generous, if you just stop being, if we just stop allowing them, if we change, if we, our laws would just change so they can't come to our country. It's it when when you when you read the Quran treatment of history as as moral demonstrations 
and as demonstrative, as symbolic, as representative, as exemplary. And you take the Quran out of being a museum piece to an actual engagement with your full life, um, it gives, gives you serious pause. Because that attitude, that sentiment is so common. And any of us can easily fall into that, fall into hypocrisy, moral and ethical hypocrisy. Okay. Then the last move of Surah Al-Munafiqun Two points. Look, in 16, first, when Allah tells us, Fattakullah mastata'atum. So, this, wasma'u wa ati'u wa anfiqu. Now, you pause here. Let's see how first, because the language is. It's very important. It's not, I said 16, it's not 16. It's, um, no, oh, sorry, it maybe it is. Oh, no, I, I skipped an ayah, sorry. Um, Remembered an ayah from Surah Al-Taghabun and confused it with Surah Al-Munafiqun. So strike everything I said and, and let's start scratch again. Okay, sorry. My apologies. Um, so let's go to um, verse um, 9. Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu, la tulhukum amwalukum wa la awladukum an zikrillah. So then that getting to the crux of the matter of this egoism when the the self focuses on its own sacrifices on as a dispute that occurred you know, my labor, what I've invested, what I've put in. Fundamentally, in the most basic sense, this is precisely that you've become focused on material 
things that you associate with the self. Al-amwal wal-awlad. Amwal, of course, is all possessions. All. But the awlad is whoever you associate with the self. The awlad is not just your children, but whether it's relatives, whether it's a clan, whether it's a nation, it's what you identify with the me. And when Allah says that of course, you know, if you take this verse out of context, well, then the Quran makes a point that don't, don't become distracted by material things and from a proper remembrance of Allah. But in context, in Surah Al-Munafiqun, what it's saying is get your priorities straight. Your, your, the problem is when you allow your money or your sense of whatever you, you, you identify your ego is, taking priority over dhikrullah. And dhikr here is not just that you are sitting and doing dhikr, but it is the proper meaning of dhikr. Jihad fi sabilillah is a dhikr. The full investment in putting Allah first is dhikr. When you sacrifice for an ethical principle, that's dhikr. When you spend from your money in Allah's cause, that's dhikr. Everything that you do with Allah, for Allah, and because Allah is the priority, is dhikr. You could be engaging in dhikr without actually sitting and doing tasbih. Dhikrillah is the, every time Allah is in your heart and animates your behavior and animates your choices, that's dhikr. Okay. Then, so, in a, in a nutshell, what is the problem with nifaq? The problem is giving priority to whatever the ego is associated with over dhikr, over Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The second point, which is the point that closes Surah Al-Munafiqun, Okay, وَأَنْفِقُوا the, the crux of the matter. وَأَنْفِقُوا مِنْ مَا رَزَقْنَاكُمْ Right? So spend from what Allah has given you. مِنْ قَبْلِ أَنْ يَأْتِي أَحَدُكُمُ الْمَوْتِ فَيَقُولَ رَبِّي لَوْلَا أَخَّرْتَنِي إِلَىٰ أَجَلٍ قَرِيبٍ فَأَصَّدَّقْ وَأَكُنْ مِنَ الصَّالِحِينَ وَلَا يُؤَخِّرَ اللَّهُ نَفْسًا إِذَا جَاءَ أَجَلُهَا that, so, the biggest challenge for human beings is not their declaration of principles, like these people who swear that they are, in fact, sincere Muslims, but it is what they materially sacrifice. Al-infaq fi sabilillah 
is all that you expend. And in fact, that all you all that you spend for what Allah has given you, whatever the nature of that thing is. So obviously money is the most obvious one. Property is a you know. But if you're a doctor and for the sake of Allah you treat people for free, that's infaq fi sabilillah. Allah has given you the, the skills to be a doctor. If you're a lawyer and you help people for free, that's infaq fi sabilillah as, as long as it is for the right cause. And in fact, fi sabilillah is whatever you sacrifice, whether it is time, material possessions, money, knowledge, skill. But then that that last point that deserves um, a pause. Okay. So before comes a time where you meet death and your sentiment is that you you what you what you think to yourself if only i had more time if only i would get a second chance like for instance you des- you discover that you've got a month to to live or you know or 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 not even a month or whatever then you tell yourself, if, I, if only I would do it all over again, this time I would in fact, would expend in Allah's cause. Now notice that this is not, in the context of nifaq, this is extremely significant. The heart of the matter for for al-munafiqun, for for hypocrisy, for the problem of hypocrisy, is that not the time of death would come and you'd say, well, if only I had more time to worship, or more time to do tasbih, or more time to fast. A munafiq can do all of that without a problem. It's it's nothing off their back, because your salah, your tasbih, your psalm could ultimately accrue to the benefit of your own ego. It could just make you feel closer to God, and I'm a good person. The true test is what you sacrifice. Which, of course, if you un- when you understand that what the context of Surat al-Munafiqun, that it essentially arose out of the whole question of sacrifice, the dispute, and so on and so forth, then you realize why that when death comes, Allah tells you, you will think to yourself, if only I would have defeated that hypocrisy within by fasaddaq. The sadaqah here means that the giving, the act of giving, 
Sadaqa, again, it's not as it's not just the money, but it is all that you give in Allah's cause. All of it. This is the way that you defeat the hypocrisy in the heart. You get over yourself and you give. You get over yourself and you give. Giving, no, I mean, the, the venues for giving are, are, are limitless, but you know, when you decide to do something that doesn't, that doesn't add to your prestige or doesn't add to your chances of promotion at work, but that adds to your status with Allah, that makes you closer to Allah. When you sacrifice for your cause, why am I? Why do I mention this? Because I I, I notice this especially among a, a lot of Muslim academics. Muslim academics will only do what will earn them accolades in their profession, in their academia. And yeah, you, you could have written wonderful articles and wonderful books, but only Allah knows whether you wrote them so that people can say you're a great scholar or whether you wrote them as truly as a service to Allah. And sometimes your sadaqah is to in fact not to invest in what will bring you prestige and honor and whatever, you know, what will get you all the types of accolades that you get within your professional circles. But what the cause of Allah demands and needs. Okay. Um, I want to just make sure I didn't forget anything. Um, I, I can't, I don't think of forgetting anything. Um, okay, I think it's the, the remarkable thing, such a, it's a short surah, but um, A, a, um, if you know, a thoroughly heart-wrenching sore. Okay, alhamdulillah, I think that's it. All right, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah, um, absolutely amazing. Let me start by doing this fun comparison. This is the description of from, again, Abdul Halim of this chapter. A Medinan surah which warns the believers about the treachery of the hypocrites and describes their behavior in some detail. A specific occasion on which the hypocrites tried to stop anyone donating money to the believers is described. 
and God calls on the Muslims to compensate for this by giving more of their own funds to the needy. That's it. <laughs> so, <laughs> alhamdulillah, and then it's like what, what we get is just a symphony of um, for two days, and I just, um, I think what especially is, is so powerful is, um, again, that sort of common conception that I know definitely as a convert, like the idea of a hypocrite was this sort of, um, you know, interesting archetype that's a little bit extreme that, you know, these are the people that do really horrible things that, you know, you never get the sense that this is actually something that could be in each and every one of us. And, you know, so the power of really going through the surah and, and really articulating for us, you know, the, the symptomology of hypocrisy and that you could really, um, you know, how it appears. And, and I think that, you know, even the stories, the human examples, you know, really showing us, like walking us through, you know, these historical narratives and, and unpacking like, okay, you know, this is how we can understand what the Quran is describing and then how to make it relevant for who we are and trying to question, okay, we were in this situation and what does that look like in our day and age? Um, you know, where would we honestly be, um, you know, when it, you think about the, 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 you know, symptomology of hypocrisy? And it just really, again, makes you re recognize how the Quran is, is speaking to us directly, that it's not a museum piece, as you said. Um, and like even how we ourselves will often react, like the example you gave of, okay, you could be fighting with your spouse, you could be complaining about all these things that you don't like, and all of a sudden you get this phone call that puts you in a happy mood, and then everything is good, and then you try to go back and pretend that, oh no, I never thought that, I never said that, you know, but then Allah calls you to be honest with yourself. Um, I mean, it's it's just such um, an incredible education in, um, you know, like the nuance and and how we are called to deal with what ourselves, um, you know, it, with naked truth. Um, so, alhamdulillah, um, and then the, the point about ego versus God and understanding even like when we sacrifice, you know, the idea of are you sacrificing and, you know, really asking yourself, if I'm doing this, am I doing this? for the sake of God, or is this somehow going to help my ego, help my prestige, help how I feel about myself? Because, you know, maybe we're doing something that isn't for Allah, but is really just for ourselves. And the importance of um, action over appearance, um, that, you know, truly it's not about labels, but it's about what we actually do. Um, so this was such an incredible surah. Alhamdulillah, thank you so much. And um, let me start by asking, you know, if one was the dhikr, and then if two, if you could maybe share with us, again, your own like engagement with the surah and where you were and what were the yeah. things that, you know. The dhikr, the, the, the uh, what is it, um, you know, it's number, no, it's number, um, what is it? Uh, yeah, it's number nine. <laughs> Because uh, number nine is, is is the essence of of what the problem is. Surah um, Al-Munafiqun. Um, I I don't um, uh, I don't remember. Um, Yeah. Okay. So uh, yeah, the, what I do remember about it, the, the, what I do remember is that um, it, I took. I, I mean, the 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 research in it was after Surah Um uh, uh, 
it's anyway it's just that that's the way the order the, the research went as things just unfolded but anyway um and and actually it was after also mujadala um but the the first thing that uh, is that the reports some of the reports mention surat al-munafiqun as um uh, taking place around uh, the fifth century hijra other reports say that it was sixth century hijra so uh, situating the the progression was important for me and then some of the reports say that it was around the ghazwat ban al-mustalaq the 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 one that I talked about while other reports said that it was around ghazwat tabuk and ghazwat tabuk then it would be too late and so i remember i spent a lot of time just um uh researching um why would some reports say that it's around Ghazwa Tabuk, um, why some reports placed it as so late, which, um, so that was, um, and uh, it, when you find a great deal of disagreement about the details of historical events, you know, whether it was, um, because Abdullah ibn Ubay uh, would uh, do this thing at Jum'ah where he says, I present you to your prophet, and, and then people would say, it. or whether it was the, you know, the dispute over the water hole, and, it, it, or it, when you find this, or, you know, the story of Jwairiya, and it, 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 that means that there was a great deal of interest. There are some historical events where you have just a very few narrations. And that then tells you that there, 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 there wasn't a lot of talk about these events, that the, the, the memory was streamlined down certain, if you will, arteries that preserved the historical event. And then you look for, well, was there interested parties that could have bias, biased these very specific historical events? But when you find a large platform of participation, a lot of different conflicting narratives, that means there, there was a, there were some hot events that got a lot of people talking and then making keeping track of all the people that that participated in the narratives so all the people that narrated something and then investigating systematically okay who was the person why what is the role of this person in why does this person's narrative disagree, uh, different from this other person's narrative? Um, and then trying to, to what, so it's like a, a bit like archeological work where you're trying to figure out, okay, there, there, there's something that animated all these people, that got all these people excited. What were the basic elements 
historically. And then, of course, once you understand um, what people are, at least are are saying the surah is is about, um, the language that Allah uses in addressing or in purportedly addressing his a certain historical set uh, set of historical events is of critical importance because as i said you know why didn't allah you know talk about abdullah ibn ubay if it was just all about abdullah ibn ubay but instead allah focuses on these specific elements uh, so if, as short as surah al-munafiqun um, is um, there actually it, it it took a lot of research. It just it involved a lot of uh, I, 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 charts of the riwayat, who said what and what were the isnads of each. Okay, and uh, who you know um, what the various participants could have been involved in, not involved in. Um, who were the various people that were accused of hypocrisy? Who were the people that are sometimes, there's disagreement as to whether they were part of those labeled as hypocrites or not. Because that's another aspect. There are these figures that, there are people like Abdullah ibn Ubay was everyone says was a hypocrite. But there are figures where you get um, disagreements. And then you then the, the realization that you know from this complex historical tapestry is it, it's really significant the way that Allah then for a scholar the tapestry important but the way that Allah marginalizes the historical tapestry to get us to focus on a moral message. That's very important because, you know, Allah doesn't point to these historical events in any specific detail, but preserves enough of the nuance to know um, how the 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 the, the sort of the the. the malicious nature and incremental nature of hypocrisy itself. And also I remember the um, um, what the background of this is um, Hassan Abdul Ghani Rahmahullah wrote a book called Al-Munafiqun wa Shu'ab al-Nifaq. Hassan Abdul Ghani of course in, in his book he didn't uh, he, um, he did what a lot of Muslims, you know, what most Muslims do, where he he takes the ayat from various w without the, 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 the approaching Surah Al-Munafiqun thematically. But I wanted to understand why, if if Allah talks in in about nifaq in a number of of surah, why a surah? would be dedicated to the theme of al-munafiqun because that's also significant so in 
and th then what you realize is that this short surah is a summation of everything you read in the Quran about the phenomena of nifaq. And uh, this surah is basically saying, you know, your your mal, your 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 amwal, and your awlad, um Every time they become the vehicle to be vested in the self, and dhikrullah, what you say is dhikrullah, is not really a dhikrullah, but it is a form of dhikr and nafs. Uh, that's the heart of nafaq. And so once you, I mean, I, I describe the surah as, as, as being scary to me, because after the journey with Surah Al-Munafiqun, I could no longer do, every time I would pray, every time I would do zikr, every time I would fast, every, I would always ask myself, is this about Allah or about me? Uh, I, I have to admit that after Surah Al-Munafiqun, for instance, I became, I shied away from doing dhikr with people because the, the worry that I might be somehow doing this dhikr so people would say, look what a pious man. So I, I, I would do it behind closed doors to you. Yeah, so it, it no, it, 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 um, <coughs> it, um, yeah, it changes your life. Do you remember when this was in like approximately what year? My mom passed away 2011. Right? Uh, I remember this was like a couple of years after my mom passed away. So it might, must be 2013, 13, 14, something like that. I ask because it, I wonder if it also changed. You know, when you made the comment about scholars, you know, oftentimes will only sacrifice and do what will advance, you know, their prestige, yeah, if that affected. Yeah, anything. no, it did. It, it, but it, uh, it's uh, a gradual thing when you, um, because you notice, uh, you know, you, of course, you know colleagues that get offers from other schools, you know, people that are teaching at uh, your school, and then they, you find out, okay, they're now going to move to Yale, move to Harvard, move to or whatever. And then, uh, then you have to have a, an honest moment with yourself. Um, you can pursue that route because you can achieve that route if that's what you want, or you can pursue a different route. Um, and so, especially after that time, 2013, 2014, it, it, it became heart and core of a lot of life decisions that you make, um, you know, what book are you going to publish next? Um, with who you're going to publish it with? Because if you want a certain route in life, you know that there's certain publishers. You you but to go but to publish with certain people, you have to write a certain type of book. You know, everything. It, it is a full engagement with life, in in in, in every sense. Um, 
you know, even who, who, you, who you're friends with, right? Um, who do you decide to spend time with? Who becomes your network? What constitutes your network? Um, in academia, a lot of things are done through um, socializing and your connections. And, um, you know, it, and connections are sometimes even more important than your objective scholarship. That's, you know, it's every, everything is, is, is it, it, it's a conscious decision that you have to make and you have to be honest with yourself. And, and so, yeah, it did, I mean, it, it of course my family ha lived the consequences of these decisions with me. So I would say our trajectory of, of our lives have been greatly influenced by, yeah. Oh, but alhamdulillah, because also it brought us to this project, and you know, Project Illumin, and I and I know the sacrifices that are made when you decide to you know pursue something that will get you the accusation of becoming you know an imam or a mullah within a yeah. professional context. But you know, as as like we have benefited, like when I hear you talk about like all the research and all of the work and all the questions and everything that you went through to arrive at what you delivered to us today, which is an insight that you can't find anywhere, I'm sure. And even to like at the end say, okay, to defeat, your, defeat hypocrisy, here are the two things you have to do. Get over yourself and then you give. I mean, that is so powerful. And for you, all of that work that you did to arrive to give us that, and we're just here to receive it. And but it means something to. I mean, how would we have ever come to this if you hadn't done that? And mm. and so for that, I mean, may Allah bless you. So so amazing. And like for us as a family, we had no idea this is what you were doing. I mean, we just knew that. We just know that now, today, after having received it. And so I'm so grateful. You know, the the blessings of being left alone as a scholar is that you can do. You can. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You do. Yeah, I, I just if you know, you know, I. And if, if you hadn't pushed me to 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 share the stuff here, I, I, you would no one had ever figured found out except Allah that what I was doing in in these many hours that I was hiding out in my. Um, and in Allah my would den. have been mad at you. You figured it out. Why didn't you tell anybody? <laughs> Alhamdulillah. I'm just, we, we joke about this a lot. So anyway, alhamdulillah. Um, but uh, I just want to, for, for those people who are, are young and want to, uh, you know, I'm just going to tell you that nothing kills your academic career right now more than becoming known as a sheikh or a mullah or an imam. Um, and that's why you don't find too many academics giving khutbas, for instance. But you, you have to make choices in life, and you have to decide what is most important for what you believe in. Alhamdulillah. Okay, let me open up to questions. Come on, Rami. Ohio is nicer than Boston. We ended up in Harvard or, or oh. Yale. <laughs> Yeah, I know you think so. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have a couple of questions. Um, okay, first of all, um, was there a, a deal?
deeper connection to the narratives about Juwaidiyah and the underlying theme of Sufi Munafiqun, or was it just uh, such a, like give your opinion because this really comes up very frequently in the Tafasir. Um, secondly, um, what's really interesting because you're saying that, okay, fight Nifaq by giving, and the word is Anfiqu, same root of Munafiq mm. and Anfiq. And I was looking in Lisan al Arab that, um, that the word Munafiq was uh, neologism. According to Nisan Arab, amongst the Arabs, like referring to specifically like this type of uh, character. Um, so I was wondering if you had, if there's anything to add on this connection between infaq and munafiq. And then uh, lastly, at the end, you were talking about how you know it's easy for a munafiq to pray fast, feel spiritual, and the true test is sacrifice. Um, and this is related to a question that I asked you after uh, last halaqah. Because, I mean, just for example, like the, the you know, like in Shari al-Afasi, mm-hmm. you know, going and talking and praising Sisi, but also his life is leading prayer. Mm-hmm. And he lives a very luxurious life. And my, like the, 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 part that I struggle to wrap my mind around is, okay, if these, if people like a monafiq like this is having spiritual experiences, um, isn't that confirmation for their life choices and lifestyles? And if so, how can Allah reward someone in that way, in a manner, in a matter that might be taken as like, you know, confirming that, you know, I wouldn't feel this way in Salah if I wasn't a Munafiq. Well, yeah, I, I mean, these are not two questions. These are a bunch of questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so first, the, the, the linguistic aspect. Um, The word munafiqun, uh, linguistically, the relationship between infaq and nifaq, um, interestingly enough, goes back to the way bukhl, uh, stinginess, was seen in in Arabic culture. Um, That, because karam, was highly valued, and Bukh was seen as a stinginess, as as um, uh, uh, as a serious moral shortage. Um, and so, the, the 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 most classic example, the, the sort of the example that at least uh, played the critical role in the emergence of the language usage itself, is that. A, a monafiq or the hypocrite the, the the way they spend is not consistent with what they say so that they um, they're in fact they're spending 
so and the mo and and in fact, quite often, the in Arabic poetry, uh, hypocrisy is portrayed as um, someone who claims to to be extremely generous, but didn't properly feed their guests. And that would be described as hypocrisy. But of course, you know, language is, is um, um, re regardless of the, 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 the history of the word itself, um, the, the word munafiqun evolves and acquires numerous meanings beyond simply inconsistency in the way that you spend and from your declared and or 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 avoid uh, beliefs and principles or at least declarations about who you are or the self um, anyway but the, the, so the biggest of course but it remains the the, the kernel of it though is that it remains that the 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 most the biggest challenge is for one to expend to sacrifice consistent with what their declared principles are and this comes back to the point you made about figures like Mishari al-Fasi and um, what's his name that uh, that person that I can't stand uh, huh? no uh, no Habib well Habib Jeffrey is among them but um, the guy in Mecca who who called uh, um, it's this yeah uh, you see the 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 thing about spiritual experiences uh, and the Sufi literature, by the way, is full of that. The, uh, I'm going to take approach it from a, a. Do you know that among the biggest deceptions? So when someone enters into the field of black magic, the entry point into black magic before evil overtakes people is actually the path of Allah. I mean, even if you read a book like Shams al-Ma'arif, it is full of religious symbolisms and invocations of Allah. And the way that you enter the field of black magic is through what are described as deeply intense spiritual experiences that have to do with isolation, protracted acts of, um, they call it dhikr, but it, it is uh, mantras, repeating of mantras, that, that induce truly remarkable experiences in the brain. And that is why Sufi literature is full of warnings 
that when so many people that seek to access the divine end up end up falling trapped to the demonic uh, the human ability to differentiate between what comes from God and what comes from shaitan is it's like a, like a, it's a fraught with danger and risk that is precisely the role of law and the role of ethics is to whatever spiritual experience you claim to have that will allow you to leave the law behind I call foul on it. The, the some of the so you know some of the Sufi, um, um, you know, say, oh, this person has reached you know to the point that the law no, no longer applies to them. The the problem with that is that they 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 you've you've walked the path. What you think came from Allah could have very well come to the devil. And the way that you check that is the law. So someone tells me, no, I'm beyond the restrictions on zina. Absolutely not. Or I'm beyond restrictions on killing a nafs. We have that. I mean, we, we, the Islamic tradition is full of examples where people who started out as mystics and, you know, eventually thought that they can in fact decide who lives and dies and, and or that uh, the prohibition against drinking alcohol doesn't apply to them or the prohibition against zina doesn't apply to them. That's precisely. But then the other is ethics. And that's critical because if regardless of how ecstatic your experiences are, if your ecstatic experiences do not lead you to the right choice when it comes to sacrifice in order to uphold a principle, and a principle that does not serve you but serves those who are disempowered and suffering, then you've got a problem. And think of, think of Ali Juma, think of Habib Jafri, think of uh, Sudeus, think of, they live in absolute comfort. Ali Juma can send a former friend, anyway, history, Ali Goma, can send tons of people to prison, can see tons of people perish in prison, see tons of children lose their f parents, see tons of people massacred, and, the, and his so-called, and he, Ali Goma, claims to have, and, and, and probably he does, claims to have oh, ecstatic experiences with, with, uh, with Allah all, all the time. I mean, if you, if you follow him till now, claims, that 
you know, him and he and Allah are, 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 are walk hand in hand practically. What 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 do what can I say about his experiences? I I would say these experiences have now at this point come from shaitan. Meaning, either shaitan the shaitan al akbar or shaitan al nafs. That, yeah, they're ecstatic experiences. They might feel make you feel really good, but you continue to enjoy the luxuries that you enjoy. You continue to have the properties that you continue to have. You continue to enjoy the comforts in life that you continue to have, while people who suffer injustice continue to suffer. And you use your ecstatic experiences to marginalize and ignore their suffering. That's the role of ethics and law. That's why this is the process of a tanahum. Allah gave us a, a nafs that is capable, that has this antenna to receive the supernal, the, what is beyond al-tabi'ah, what is beyond the, 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 the uh, normal world, to the paranormal. However, Allah put law and the rational ethics in place to limit our ability to become gods ourselves. Because we, as Khulafa'ullah, we are sort of semi-gods. And but that semi-gods in the sense, in, in the most negative sense, in the sense that we are capable of ultimately worshiping ourselves rather than worshiping Allah. And the, the thing about ecstatic experiences are that they can easily devolve into worshiping the self. You are actually having an ecstatic experience through the self, for the self, and by the self. It's a high. But What comes from shaitan and could camouflage so easily as coming from God. And the hardest thing when at some point you receive the, the, the truly divine experience, you experience what comes from Allah, and then shaitan enters into the picture and you fail to notice because you've become addicted to the ecstasy. The yardstick is time and again is an infaq. Is do you sacrifice or do you not sacrifice? If you live enjoying prestige, enjoying comfort, enjoying money, like all these people that we've mentioned, enjoying adoration, but you no longer think about who's suffering. The fact that someone, you no longer, your, your, your ecstasy doesn't allow you to be bothered anymore. In other words, you claim, you know, my, oh, I am in my Sufi ecstasy, but it doesn't fundamentally bother you. 
that there are people that are starving all around you, that there are people suffering in jail all around you, that there are numerous tragedies. And you tell yourself, oh, well, you know, I am, it's, it doesn't bother me because I am beyond dunya. No, that's not true. It doesn't bother you because you worship yourself. I, I've, I've encountered, I've, I've had the same, <laughs> same discussion with numerous Sufi circles where, especially about uh, Palestine and, uh, you know, oh, we, why is it that we never talk about Sheikh? Why was it that we never talk about Palestine or Quds and so on? Oh, because, you know, we, we are in, in our, you know, in our journey with Allah, Allah will take care of it. Events happen where you're supposed to feel for your Muslim brothers and sisters. You're supposed to feel for Baytul Biyutullah. Recently, Sisi I mean, tore down a thousand mosques, over a thousand mosques in Egypt, many of them historical mosques. And the same Sufi circles sit there with their dhikr, not bothered. Seeing Allah's house being torn down all over Egypt, not, not, it, it doesn't, so how, how is that dhikr? How, dhikr then becomes a drug. You're taking a drug. It's not about Allah. It's not about Islam. It's about the drug that makes you feel good. Islam can never become a drug. That's why Surah Al-Munafiqoon underscores and in fact, if, if your spiritual ecstasy becomes a high that doesn't evolve consistent sacrifice, your high should be in sacrifice, not in the high itself. So it is absolutely, you know, I admire the, the uh, Sufi that truly, uh, the old classical Sufism, the Sufism that would say, you know, to be a true Sufi, you must be truly without, truly poor. That I respect. But the type of Sufism where, like some of the great Munshidin in Egypt, like there is a very famous Munshid in Egypt, his name is Tuhani, lives in a, a palace that is mind-boggling, beyond the reach of 99% of the population, has a driver, the latest Mercedes, but goes around singing about being poor and being the Sufi and being in the poetry of Julani. Do I believe for a second his ecstasies are anything? You live in this level of wealth, surrounded by the number of people who are starving and poor and, and homeless in Egypt? No. And that's, that's the balance between the every, everything has to play a role. Your reason has to play a role. Your conscience has to play a role. Your heart has to play a role. If you neutralize the role of any of these functions, that's how you that's how the balance then is good. That is why you, it is mind-boggling. You have someone like in, in Syria. You have someone like Assad who has leveled 
cities killed a countless number of children, tortures to death people left and right, incredible tragedy and horror beyond belief. And I know the heads of Sufi tariqas that still praise Assad in the midst, they finish their zikr session, and then between this zikr and this zikr, they meet with Assad and shake hands and praise him. Tell me, are there highs coming from Allah or from shaitan? And, and it is reason and law and ethics and, and the conscience that allows you this judgment. So when, you know, someone says, it's, it's, it recites Quran and cries every night and recites the Quran, and then not, not, a, a, not a sentiment about the Quds, not a sentiment about Palestinians, not a sentiment about the, the, those, the Muslim China, in China, not a sentiment about the, the horrible treatment of the Rohingyas in, in Saudi Arabia, not a sacrifice about the amount of wealth and comfort that he lives in. I can't stand listening to the Quran from him. Can't stand it. Hypocrisy. That is what hypocrisy is. Your tears are the tears of a hypocrite. It's not. That, that, is, the, 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 that is why. You that, notice, like in Surah Al-Munafiqun, it could have said, it could have emphasized <coughs> that those who are Munafiqun, just as, as we saw before, that, you know, is a that they, they just don't worship well and stop there. But no, it doesn't. It's infaq. It's their sadaqah. It's, you know, what are they really about? Is their life about themselves or about service? I always tell, that's why, you know, someone comes and says, you know, oh, I, I'm doing this and I felt so good. I, I felt had this experience. Right away, I asked them, how about your service? Oh, Sheikh, I'm telling you, I, I just had this experience that I saw and I felt like I'm lightweight and I'm floating on air and, and you're telling me, it's like, how is your service? It is the service that tells me whether it's from Allah or from shaitan, not the experience. Are you serving or about you, about yourself? That's it. It reminds me of that recent article about Mufti Mank, um, who was meeting with the rabbi and said, I'm above politics. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, no one is above anything. We are human beings and we should know our place. As human beings, we are never above anything. Not above politics, not above economics, not above justice, not above ethics, not above law. Prayer. Or, or above prayer, obviously. We're never above anything. The, the crux of Iman is to know your place as a human being. And we are human beings. 
we are never above criticism, never above self-criticism, never, the, the minute you start thinking that you are above something, watch out for hypocrisy. Oh, Jewish story. Oh, oh, the the, the uh, no Jewairia comes in only because of the connection to Surat al-Munafiqun to Ghazwat Banu al-Mustalik. Um, I injected the Jewairia. That's why I was debating whether I should even talk about Jewairia at all, or just leave it to the Sira, because it's really. The only reason that I, I did talk about it is then I remembered that when I was doing the research on the what I called clusters of narratives, it struck me, it struck me that how many of the people that I know prefer the first cluster and not the second cluster, the, the cluster that he, the, the prophet, the, 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 oh, it's so beautiful that, and then how many people that I know who, again, were supposedly pious, but have used narratives like Juwairiya to do things that were sexually inappropriate, that, well, you know the, the you know to, to, to get engaged in secret marriages or um, uh, marry and divorce numerous women and I, I you know I, I know people from certain circles in, in Jordan that followers of Hamim Keller who and and I know the the role that the story of Jawairiya and similar stories have played in the culture of these people who. And, and when I, especially the ones, who've, the, the ones who've written in Arabic, when I went, as I was part of also the researchers reading what modern writers wrote, and some, some of these writers I know personally, and then asking myself, well, if the evidence is the way I found it, why do you, did so many of these people that I know jump on the first cluster and ignore the second cluster. You know, like the people in Jordan and other people and so on. And then it struck me that the role of nifaq in it, it it's, you're preferring the historical narrative because it serves you. It serves the, your desire to engage in these secret, secret marriages into, you know, um, and that's that's the only reason then I thought, okay, you know, I'll talk about Jariria in the context of Surat al-Munafqun because it, it connects to that element of nifaq. Um, but, you know, the element of nifaq is, is, can be found in, in so many things. Um, you know, the, is it... This has to, about, has to do with historical Muslashi. Preferring a historical narrative because in, for the cause of Allah is something I respect. But preferring a historical narrative because you think that it is consistent with the way you understand Allah is at least something I respect whether I agree with or not. But preferring a historical narrative because it legitimates 
your impulses, your desires, is something I don't respect. It's something that I see as a, a function, a, a, a product of the fact. So that that's really the the, the connection. But I mean, the, you know, it's like if we if we if we ever do the Sira thing, Inshallah. it it, uh, the, it you know, there's a lot more what to say about this, and yeah, it's similar type thing. Okay, so it's 9:20 now. I know Sharif has a question, and uh, Maghrib is over at 10. So um, oh, uh, yeah, I no, want we to should know. Pray Maghrib. Okay, so let's take a break, and then we'll come back, and then finish okay, Q&A. Uh, okay, okay. We'll, we'll pray Maghrib, and 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 then finish the Q&A. Okay, salam alaikum. Uh, don't go away. <laughs> don't go away. We'll be back soon. <laughs> All right, so we're good to go. All right. Welcome back. Um, Sharif has a question. Um, okay. My, you know, I, I think when I was younger, I used to view the concept of a spiritual experience based on how I felt. Um, and I realized how later on how misled that was um, because I think the nature of life is that feelings constantly change and um, now how, how I define uh, a spiritual experience is by a personality change and within the context of, of what you're discussing it seems like it's a personality change sufficient to bring about selfless behavior um, because it's based on action and not how I feel. But this Surah is, is really troubling to me and as we're going into Q&A, that feeling of trouble grows even more. Um, and my question is, is around self-delusion and the reason why it's around self-delusion is I think I can best illustrate it through an example. You know, if we, we take Vic for instance, um, someone might be intending to go into Vic because they want to feel a, an elation or an ecstasy. Another person might be going into Vic because they sincerely want to become closer to God. What I've found, or I, and I don't know if this belief is, is correct or not, um, but what I feel my dedication to Vic in a communal setting is, is about is not just, is actually the, f the priority is not my own elevation. The priority is how I bond with, with other people. Because in this society we tend, the, the habit is to bond with people through gossiping, um, through heedless talk, through talking about celebrities, through talking about my material, um, through having fun, through distracting myself, through you know, it, the, the collaborative effort and distraction. And so as much as, as a communal level, as much as I can introduce activities with other people that involve God, because it's like I was telling mom the other day that I kind of, I look at it as like a national anthem. Mm -hmm. You know, it's something that you're, you're singing and you're, and you're rejoicing in an artistic expression um, about the glory of God rather than, you know, the glory of 
the other music that, that we kind of bond over in this country, which is obviously a very different um, thing. And so with, with this, what you said in, in the in the halakha that, you know, at what point does I- inconsistency become hypocrisy? I guess what my question is, is this inconsistency become hypocrisy through self-delusion? Because if I'm going to a dhikr, let's say I'm going to a communal dhikr, and that might be in my, my intention is to to collaborate and to and join in an activity that is going to allow us to bond over God, you know, which might actually be more, you know, we might have a convert or might have someone who's just coming into their Islam and me showing up and being there is actually a good for them. But at the same time, I, I can't lie to myself that I like how it makes me feel. I like how other people look at me. I like that that people might value me for my piety. Um, so is there, is the thing that may possibly prevent me from falling into that trap is being honest that my ego enjoys this. It doesn't mean that I throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I have to be honest and I have to remain honest about it and I have to go take that to God and pray about it and ask for forgiveness about it, as opposed to you know what it seems like in, in these examples of nafaq that are given in, in, the, in the surah, that it's people who are not just doing these very human things and these very understandable things, but they're constructing a whole narrative and they're lying to themselves, even when they apologize, even when they decide not to go to blows to hurt each other, um, they their their heart remains in that delusion that they have the right and they're entitled to behave that way. So I, I don't know if it's intellectually dishonest to say that the linchpin and the whole thing that, you know, maybe it's too simplistic to say that what actually differentiates them and what makes it hypocrisy versus just human failure that can be repented for is self-delusion. But I was wondering if you, if you could say more on that. Yeah, it's um, look the the Sotum uh, Salt gives us the, our our uh, you know that they they've taken their iman as a cover a cover for what. It is for the act of sudud, sudud an sabilillah. Now, look, sudud an sabilillah is that you are, you are effectively obstructing the path to Allah. Now, obstruction to the path to Allah could take a variety of forms. So, if if you have a, a, someone who is known as a pious sheikh. And this pious sheikh supports an unjust ruler, a dictator, someone who's commi- who commits a lot of injustice. How is that sudud an sabillah? Well, it's sudud an sabillah because when when people see that iman is used as a justification for injustice and for oppression and for despotism, 
it turns people away from iman it, to we as we because we are human beings it is inevitable that allah coded in us the desire the 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 the, the desire for self preservation and self promotion because it is necessary for survival. I mean, in a most extreme form, if you truly no longer value the self at all, you won't eat, you won't dress, you won't bathe, you won't do anything for the self because you don't, you, you know, you don't. But that's not what you, you have to have the right amount of, of investment in the self. And it is truly when the, when that investment starts becoming dominates over other aspects and Allah gives us that yardstick look at whether you are sacrificing and look at whether you are obstructing or promoting the path to Allah so in the example that you you give okay yeah you communal you think of communal zikr and there is an element if you're honest with yourself yeah there is an element that I, I enjoy it there is an element that uh, I like it when people think I'm pious. It is an element that um, people might admire or whatever. But ultimately, all these elements do not uh, prevail over the other purposes, which is that you bond a community. That the reason you want to bond this community is not to admire you or to worship you or to elevate you want to bomb this community so that this community can do something for god and and you and so one it doesn't prevail over the other elements in other words it it is within within its space the other is that you take uh you take steps to limit the self from overtaking the other causes. So, you know, um, within the context of organizing communal zikr, you, you go out of your way to um, not to put yourself center and stage. You, you know, you see this even with, um, you know, um, with, um, I, I was talking recently to someone who has done a great deal of good. Someone who's just, you know, cheats, has, has, has done things that have turned neighborhoods from poverty to well-being, has helped, um, has helped um, uh, uh, um, uh, a lot of sick people, uh, uh, you know, uh, he's a doctor and has treated a lot of people in need and so on and so forth. And, of course, there's a certain amount of self-satisfaction and you know happiness with the self, but you notice with, with such a person whether they've made their projects about themselves or they made it about the service, and you even observe it in the way that this person reacts to praise. Um, there is false modesty and subhanAllah Allah has given the people most people the ability to know it to sense it where you 
person is pretending, he person likes the praise but pretending not to like it, and where you genuinely find that this person is, isn't it, the praise is is, um, is not what they're they're in it for. They're just it's it's not what, you know. They're they're sort of uneasy with it. They don't know what to do with themselves, like this person was. Um, and so that that is the you know it, it, the it's like it's like all warnings that ultimately leave themselves within your discretion. Whenever Allah gives us the discretion because by, by giving us the power, Allah relegates the power in our hands. And then Allah says, use it correctly. Correct usage, because life is complex and because Allah's creation is complex, it can never dumb itself down to flat universals. But it is always striking the balance. And that is why Allah taught us, as we've learned earlier, the mizan, the mizan in everything, striking the, the correct balance, the right balance. But, you know, within, you know, so you ask yourself, have I become like al khushb al-Musannada, like, you know, one of these people who is uh, constantly turning everything into about me. So, you know, it, it, have I engaged into a, a process where every sahha is about me, every, every conversation is about me, every concern is about me, every, what is the role of the me in, 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 in the dynamic that I've unleashed? And the, the, the solution is not to abandon the dynamic, but to treat the self, to fight the self. Um, so even when I said that, you know, I, um, um, you know, sort of my, uh, that I've tended to do more zikr by myself, I mean, if I'm completely honest with myself, is that I lead a solitary life anyway. So it's not really like I had the choice to do calm zikr in a community and I chose not to do it in the community and I chose to do it by myself. Um, it is from a solitary choice to a solitary choice. Um, uh, the, 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 you know, if, if I had the chance for a communal zikr, then these questions would then become relevant. You know, how can I make this zikr not about me? How can I limit whatever role that I play? How can I control my own impulses so that I control my own demon? Um, you know, is, uh, as the Prophet warns us that shaitan it flows within you like blood. So sh your shaitan is, is always within, and which means that you always have to restrain your shaitan. It, 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 your shaitan is never gonna go away. Um, and 
And what's really dangerous is when those people that believe that they've conquered the shaitan. That's actually the people that worry me the most. The people who start talking as if their shaitan doesn't exist and they talk with absolute confidence that and and this is often what that's the point where you see these people do horrible horrendous things um, like use their piety to devalue human life for example example or use their piety to to ignore injustice uh, they first have to convince themselves that in fact the, the shaitan is no longer there that so they don't have to worry about their shaitan but it is as long as a human being can you know seriously wrestles and only allah knows how serious you are in wrestling with your shaitan um then that then then you know, for as a sign of health, that's that's I take that always as a sign of health. Like your immunity system is working. As long as your immunity system is functioning, then that gives me a great deal of assurance and comfort. And so when the immune, when the, when you find that someone's immunity system is not there, that's really the big danger. That's really the the, the thing where you say, okay, well, it has. Um, and I, and Surah Al-Munafiqun, I mean, in, in, in so many, to, to just take it as about, oh, it's just condemning the hypocrites. No, it's not just condemning the hypocrites of past. It is warning us about hypocrisy within. To put it differently, it is warning us about shaitan within. And it's telling us, think about the shaitan. You, you know, look at the, the symptoms and ask yourself, where is your shaitan in this process? You know, is your shaitan 10%, 20%, 50%, 70%, 80%? And the, the, the more cautious you are with, between you and Allah, uh, the better. The, the, the more you critical you are between you and Allah, the better, and the more service you do, the more it deflates that ego. The the more it it sort of suffocates the 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 breathing space for the shaitan within. Um, yeah. Okay. We have a question uh, from Brian um, in regards to the homeless crisis in some cities in America. I've heard Muslims say that homelessness is a lifestyle choice, and we should not give to them. Instead of understanding the root causes of homelessness, they'll disregard it as not their problem by saying they just need to get psychological help. What literature could the professor recommend about understanding the root causes of homelessness and how the average person can help? Yeah, you know, this is really, this is really, it, it, it really, I, I don't know, I, I, it's an immigrant, it, it's a phenomenon of immigrant mentality, I have to say, for the most part. You know, not always, but for the most part. Um, just because you're an immigrant, just because you've worked hard, just because Allah enabled you the health, the well-being, to work hard, to pay your bills, to avoid homelessness, uh, sometimes 
that sometimes the same people that say things like that, I know that they exploit the system to get from the state money that they're not entitled to. The same people who are sitting there condemning people for being homeless, um, and they and they think to themselves just because we you know we're this is uh, we're dealing with corporations or we're dealing with the IRS or we're dealing with a social security system or whatever that it's somehow it's halal to to cheat that, which is exactly what sort of Bakra. Condemns Jews for doing that. They, 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 that they said, oh, when it comes to non-Jews, we can, we can, have licenses, when it in taking their money, and then you find Muslims doing the same. Oh, because they're not Muslim, then we can cheat the system. And, and by the way, these same people, just for information, same people. If they were even in a Muslim country, they would still cheat. I mean, it, they, it someone with this mentality, it, it really. They they really use religion as a cover, but their their ethics are the same regardless. But there is a vast literature on on the reasons for homelessness, um, and and um, there there is a, 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 I mean just there there's a, a, a political scientist at, at Yale called James Scott who has written a lot on. On homelessness, but but even beyond that, if you just do any research on homelessness or um, urban disposition or urban displacement, and yes, some degree of homelessness is because people are are addicted to alcohol or addicted to drugs and can't hold jobs. Um, some degree of homelessness is because of mental illness, but this society, like so many other societies, unfortunately, doesn't spend money on uh, mental illness. And while we spend, you know, what, ridiculous amounts of money on weapons and arms and so on, uh, we, we literally spend peanuts on di mental disability. And and but. But beyond this, uh, a lot of people are homeless because of various serious trauma in life. A trauma that they played no role in creating for themselves, um, including abuse and the like. Addiction is often itself an illness that, that we are only starting to understand and and I, I mean, and th that's a very big topic. But mental illness, you can judge the morality of society often with how well they take care of those who are mentally disabled. That is often a thermometer for the, the, how civilized the society is. Add to all of that, the literature is very clear. I mean, the, every scholar, every sociologist, every anthropologist who have studied the phenomena of homelessness, 
depending on the methodology of the research, the percentages are as high as 50%, and the lowest that I've ever read is 20%, is not due to any mental illness and not even due to any addiction. And But a lot of times, poor education, meaning they they haven't had many opportunities to be trained or qualified in life, and horrible circumstance that led to an inability to pay your bills. And many of people in such situations end up living in their car until they are forced to sell their car. And then once they sell their car, they're forced there to, to live on the streets. And it's a cycle. Once you are on the streets, and again, I am talking about numerous studies that have documented this, that once you lose your ability to pay your mortgage or your rent and make payments on your car, and you end up in the street, your ability to gain employment, to get off the streets, plummets, I mean, because your ability to bathe and change safely, your the extent to which you are harassed by elements on the streets or by the police themselves, and your ability to gain employment and make a good impression and hold employment and then save enough capital to get off the streets because it's not, you know, you don't start your job today and you can get an apartment. You have to save enough money. So it is just amazingly ignorant to blame the homeless for their plight. The bottom line. And for a Muslim to do it, it's 10 times as worse. Here again is where, you know, someone that sits there in zikr all the time and then some, says something very ignorant like this about the homeless. To me, to what extent have they actually experienced Allah in their heart? Because they can't be bothered by knowing the reasons for the stuff after everything that the Prophet taught us. After all the times that the Quran emphasized Ibn Sabil and and Miskeen and you know and and after all of this, they can look at people in the street, people in 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 trouble, and not be bothered to actually become educated about why they're in trouble and are comfortable dismissing their suffering by some sweeping generalizations and often often taking their dhikr and their worship as junna to ig- ignore the suffering. Oh, you know, as I'm, I feel so good fasting and praying and so on. I don't want to bother my mazaj, my, my, my mood. I don't want to disturb my mood by thinking of those who are suffering. What type of piety is this? It's not piety. Th- that's a drug. You've turned your iman into a drug, into a high. The very nature of your your iman is is not about you. It's about Allah. And if it's about Allah, then it is then the the person in 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 suffering has as much right to well being as you. 
And <coughs> Allah, your Iman should teach you that Allah is going to ask you to what extent in there you could have alleviated, removed that suffering, and you failed to do so. And Allah doesn't ask that. Allah is going to ask you, well, you know, why didn't you? Allah is not going to ask you, why didn't you pray a hundred more rakas? Or why didn't you spend, you know, a hundred more hours in zikr? Allah is going to ask you, what could you have done and you failed to do? And if your perception about what your responsibility is doesn't jive with the mizan that Allah has for you in the hereafter, you're in trouble. So, what do you say about someone who is so heedless that they are so comfortable taking Allah for granted, saying, oh, my response is good enough. And it should, so because what you're saying is, the response that is good enough to make me feel good is should be good enough for my God as well. I decided that I've solved the problem by saying it's their fault. And so what you're implying is that because you've decided that it should be good enough for God as well. Well, how much does it trouble you if your response is not God's response? If it doesn't trouble you, then what, what value is your zikr? What value is your iman? See, that is, that is the Islam that transformed the world. The Islam of, you know, the, the drug Islam, the Islam that have become a form of injecting yourself with anesthesia against the pains of the world. You know, we, we didn't need that Islam. Christianity already played that role, performed that role. And Judaism already performed that role for everyone other than the Israelites. Uh, you know, for Islam to come and do the same, it absolutely makes no sense. Yeah, I mean, thank you for the question about the homeless, because that, that is something that it, it, every time I encounter it, it just really irritates the heck out of me. Because you haven't bothered to do any homework. It is clear you haven't read any articles, you haven't read any books, you haven't watched any documentaries, you haven't done anything. So it is like, oh, like it is the same type of attitude that looks at people in political prison because you can encounter this among Egyptians and Syrians and Libyans and all, all, all the, the well, you, you tell them, you know, how about the people in political prison? Well, what do, have they done to be in prison? Blaming the victim. It's the same attitude. It, it's like, well, you know, I'll, I'll shift the blame to the person suffering so my Islam can continue undisturbed. That's not, a, that's, that's not, that, that's, that's, that's truly, if you if you want if you think of what shaitan would want to corrupt a sirat al-mustaqim to corrupt the path of allah i can't think of a more devious thing for shaitan to want than that you know just use your islam to take care of yourself and the people who are similarly immorally oblivious like you 
and ignore the suffering of all those who are suffering by blaming them, blaming the person who suffers for their own suffering. You also, you know, you found that again uh, uh, when the 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 more the, the the often racist attitude that you get towards, for instance, migrant workers, and then say, "Oh, well, they're lazy, they're dishonest, they're as if you had any hand in being play being born." an American or a Saudi or a Kuwaiti or, you know, this is what, something Allah gave you to test you, not to bless you, to test you. Being born a Saudi or a Kuwaiti or whatever, it's not a, it's not a blessing, it's a test. Alhamdulillah. Well, okay, we, we're way past the 10 o'clock mark, so we're out of time. Um, but thank you so much, Sheikh. God bless you for everything that you have given us, um, in especially the two days of Surah Manafikun. Um, may we, you know, learn the lessons and internalize them. Um, I'm, I'm so excited, inshallah. Next week we'll have a new Surah, inshallah. So um, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Have a wonderful week, and we will see you soon, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum.